Welcome to the Foreign Desk Podcast. I'm Lisa Daftari, and here we are, day one of a President Biden. Um, and we want to dive right in. Already uh, pen to paper, President Biden, on the afternoon of his inauguration, uh, signed several executive orders into effect, um, perhaps a sign of things to come in the next 100 days or beyond for four years. Uh, and to break this all down, we want to talk about, is this a re- just an about face of the Trump uh, presidency, or are we going to see some real um, thought out policy. I want to bring in policy analyst Michael Johns, who's also the national co-founder and leader of the Tea Party movement, former White House speechwriter to President George H.W. Bush, uh, and um, brilliant guy overall. So thank you for being here with us today. It's a real pleasure, Lisa. Thanks for all you've been doing. I've been following your work for a long time on East and North Africa, and uh, really, I think you've made some phenomenal contributions. And, you know, so it's an honor to join you. What a day! What a week! What a what a year! Right? <laughs> Where do we start on all of this? Um, I, I want to start you want with. Want to give you? Want me to give you an opportunity? Want me to offer, answer that question? Sure. You, go ahead. Uh, we're less than twenty four hours into uh, Biden's. Uh, pre- well, we're a little more than twenty four hours into his presidency. Twenty six hours. Um, of course, the, one of the first steps he took was putting in the mandatory uh, coronavirus masks for uh, any individual on federal property, and he has already um, violated his own executive order. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, I, I got to be honest with you, my general sense of this um, is like often you look at these administrations, and I know there's a lot of anxiety that gets created, and look, you know, we lived through the night, it's a new day. We've got a very strong country in a lot of ways. I don't want to, you know, play up people's fears. Uh, but the reality is, as we pointed out, and I pointed out emphatically during this campaign, this man is taking us in all the wrong directions, in my judgment. Well, let's let's talk about these things specifically. I know, yes, COVID, there's uh, at least 10 different um, executive orders with regards to COVID. I read through some of them. It is, yes, wearing a mask, ordering companies to create more masks. Um, as I went down the list of, of uh, these executive orders, I thought to myself, these, are these actual issues that we're having? Is there a mask shortage? Are people not actually wearing a mask on a public bus or a train or on an airplane? Because I've been on all of those things and I've, I've not seen that. Um, you know, is this just smoke and mirrors? Is this to say, well, thank God you voted for me because I'm going to stop COVID and these are the things that I'm going to do. Well, in addition to everything else I've done, I've spent about 20 years in healthcare management. And, you know, I have to say, if you really looked at the beginning parts of this and said, let's listen to the science on um, masks, it was not at all clear cut. And well, it actually was clear cut. I mean, World Health Organization and the CDC both had a position on masks all the way up to spring saying, do not purchase a mask. We need them for healthcare providers. And so it was, it's really been, you know, I hate to say it, but it's evolved into a political prop. Uh, It was utilized heavily by Biden. I saw Biden last night sitting, you know, sitting there in the Oval Office, no one else seemingly around with the mask on. I mean, um, it's, it's a it's become a contemporary means of communicating look how uh, much trouble we're in no one denies the seriousness of this pandemic right, right. Uh, but but i don't think you can deny either the seriousness that president trump brought to it all the way back to 
trying to get the CDC into Wuhan January 3 when they said no. I mean, I just got off debating some political science professor who said there was no plan. Of course, there's no plan. I mean, we didn't, uh, COVID wasn't known until it was known. Uh, so, you, you know, but there was a plan as it related to steps that would be taken. The first one was to get the CDC in there and China prevented it. China has still been obstructing, even the World Health Organization obstructing. They've done everything that they could from the very beginning of this to make it as painful and difficult as possible on individuals. This is, you know, it's part of a biological warfare program that they've been developing um, in Wuhan for a long time. A lot of questions about it. We've had the United States, at least intelligence wise, plenty of concerns about it. And, you know, this is, I mean, can you believe just to ask you a question? We just sat through an inaugural address yesterday where this president said that the uh, biggest threat we, the biggest threat we face as a country is um, political or white extremist political terrorism. I mean, I'm not diminishing it. I'm sure it exists. I don't personally run into any of these people, but China, China, <laughs> China is going to be the defining issue of our of the rest of our lifetimes. It's going to present a major threat and holding them accountable on this is should be priority one and getting their cooperation. You know, if he's the great diplomat that he contends he is, and he certainly is, he and his family have pocketed uh, plenty of money from the Communist Party of China, you think there would be some degree of cooperation there. I'm not, you know, you think you'd be right on top of that. I just, very confused priorities, priorities and very political, I think. Yeah, it's it's um, it's amazing how many distractions um, there are. Obviously, you, you said it perfectly in the sense that we don't deny that there is this extremism. We see it in Portland. We see it. We saw it at the Capitol. We see it on both sides, and and we've been very quick to condemn it. Um, but to say that that is the biggest issue of our times, and then people fall for it, it's just like the global warming issue. You know, no one's saying it doesn't exist. It's just saying that that's not gonna, what's going to you know, keep me up at night when I know that Iran is on the one yard line from getting a nuclear bomb. When I know that, as you said, China, whether, you know, whether they manufactured this virus or are not complying with their transparency, both in both cases, we have an enemy uh, and they are not, you know, working together with us to, to, to fix the situation. Since you do have a background in policy, um, I, you were close to the White House for a very long time and working for think tanks, and then you have a background in healthcare. Um, do you actually think that there was a, there, something more that Donald Trump could have done, whether it was in the rhetoric, in his actions, or in the optics? I was a supporter of the um, daily press conferences. I thought they were largely net net positive, but there were some comments that were made in there that have been obviously exploited by his political opponent, opponents. Um, I mean, whenever I, whenever you, you'll notice on a lot of issues that we're confronting right now, that whenever you uh, engage with Trump opponents, they just sort of take it as a for granted um, that these things were mismanaged or would have been better managed under someone else's watch. And uh, you know, I mentioned going into Wuhan on January 3 and the fact that we're that early on without, I, I don't believe we had a documented death from COVID yet at that point, where Peter Navarro and others were telling the president, look, this is a major, major problem. Um, and it was, you know, a lot of other establishment listened to the science folks who had a very different view about that. And then we had the, the January 30 puts the uh, travel ban in place. 
how many lives did that travel ban uh, save? I mean, it's tough to guess. Um, it's not a small number. I mean, and you know from what Biden said that he opposed it, called it racist and xenophobic, not a constructive addition. And of course, there was really no media coverage of this guy for the entire campaign out of his Wilmington, Delaware basement. Uh, so he would make comments like that. No one would say, hey, at what point, you know, was it April or May or July? Did you finally conclude that this was not racist and xenophobic and actually was a very constructive, maybe the most constructive step that could be taken in containing the growth of this pandemic? Um, and then you go and look at, you know, the, the mass mobilization of health resources across this country and what the president did. The public-private partnerships, which, trust me, are not easy to put together, particularly when they haven't had a, a history of, of working on this particular issue. And then you're dealing with technical technology companies that, by and large, didn't support the president um, in a lot of cases. And, uh, and most importantly, you get a vaccine developed for a novel virus in a year that's unheard. It's it literally is a record. I mean, usually a vaccine is about a 10-year process. And, um, you know, even the more seemingly easy vaccines like the MMR vaccine that's been used for a long time was three or four years in development. So uh, we're, you know, if you drill down on these guys and you say, what would you like, what, what, what would he have done that would have satisfied you? Where you would have said, you know, Donald Trump did a pretty good job. Yeah, we lost 400,000 lives. No one can diminish that. And it's tough to go around saying I did a great job when you got 400,000 people who right. died. Right. Even there's questions about those statistics. You know, I have to say on the major presidential decisions, because not all of this is contained in the Oval Office. You know, there were all sorts of other components, including decisions that governors made that were, that were ill-advised, and including, obviously, clinical decisions that were made on the fly. Mm -hmm. I think you have to give him a, a generally a high grade, and I know that's really bothersome to a lot of his opponents. But honestly, it, it, and it did change this election cycle, no doubt about it. I mean, I think uh, absent COVID, I don't think any doubt that this president would have been reelected in a landslide. He may have, he may have been reelected in a landslide anyway. I don't know. Right. Um, well, it seems that way as, as close as, as he did come. Um, let me go down the, the list of executive orders that were signed yesterday, and I want to get your, your opinion on this. So canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, that was very, very, very troublesome to, to Canada, our neighbor, and obviously a lot of jobs here in the U.S. Extending the moratorium. The jobs. You sign that, you got to tell those tens of thousands of Americans who are going to lose their jobs out of that pipeline, what they're supposed to be doing. Where do they go? How do they pay their mortgage payment, their, their electric bill? You know, because we these things flippantly are signed in the interest of some usually ill-defined uh, environmental objective. It's not even really fully understood by the people. And no one ever did. No one ever addresses the, the serious downside that that's going to present and for gas prices and, and other right. energy. Right. And uh, Canada has has brought to the attention of the United States that they have worked on um, ameliorating a lot of, of those emission problems and that they that it is not as, as bad as once thought. Um, 
let me go down the list here and then we'll, we'll have a, a conversation about all of them. Extending the moratorium on mortgage and rent, advancing racial equity, strengthening DACA, overturning the ban on sanctuary cities, getting federal grants, uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, no surprise there, ending the travel ban, stopping border, border wall construction. Uh, the list goes on, but those are some of the more prominent ones. Was there anyone on the, that list that surprised you yesterday? No, I think, you know, honestly, it, it's highly, it's, it, I, I, it's tough to be too critical. I mean, I think they're bad policy decisions, they're be, but they're political decisions. It's about getting rid of the Trump legacy. And in fairness, you know, Trump, when he came in, looked at a whole series of executive orders that he signed, that he put into place, including that travel ban as one example, that were designed to move the country in his direction. And that's, you know, we say elections have consequences. That's what we're talking about. So, you know, we have uh, this travel ban, by the way, it's not a Muslim ban. I mean, how do you have? No, it's you know, not. I, I don't want to get into too yeah. much like inside baseball because people may not know it, but the new White House press secretary has a purportedly deep level of expertise in foreign affairs, having worked at the right. State Department and in a spokesperson role. Don't think much of her positions or her thoughtfulness in these issues, but she certainly knows that the largest Muslim countries of the world and ballpark nine tenths of Muslims in the world have been exempted from this travel ban. And even the travel ban is so it's it's not Muslim and it's not a ban either. It, it, it addresses suspensions or footnotes kind of provisions that are required. Just, I was very disappointed in the way that was a, you know, so you can get up there and give this great unity speech about how we need to bring everybody together. Give me a chance, you know, you know, you, you'll see I'm a good hearted guy. No, you really, you know, you, you went on the rest of that speech and you labeled your political enemies racist basically. And now you, you, and now you send your, your press secretary down to completely misrepresent the president's agenda, which on this travel ban, which was designed to protect the American people. And by the way, there again, where's the explanation? So, okay, if uh, if he feels that we can bring people in from Mogadishu, Somalia, who have literally no records at all to provide when they go to get a, v a visa, and they can just sort of fly here, uh, I, I would like to hear, is, uh, look, where's the question mark to him as to what sort of safety guarantees can he give the American people in the absence of Trump's thoughtful travel ban that the repeal of that is not dangerous? Uh, from the standpoint of terrorism or any one of the series of, of problems that can emerge. All right. Um, of of all the policies, I mean, we don't, we don't know much. I mean, other than what was reversed yesterday, um, as you said, you know, the, the, the Biden campaign didn't do much of campaigning uh, up to the election. Um, they campaigned on not being Donald Trump uh, and mentioned obviously the COVID stats. And um, the, the one thing that they did mention over and over again um, that we had some idea about is the Iran nuclear deal, getting back involved in that. Um, you know, put this on the same list as, as maybe the, the, the immigration uh, policies. Um, you know, we have a migrant caravan on the way here. We already had a Biden official tell them, oh, you know, right now is not the best time, even though why would they get going? Because they know that or they believe that the Biden administration will be much more uh, kind to them in terms of, of letting in the migrants. But when push comes to shove, do you believe that this administration will continue with their ideology or will the actual facts and reality 
perhaps change that approach. Do you mean ideology on Iran? Or on Iran, on, I mean, in general, this is yeah, I, issue I, by issue, because I know that, that you know a, a great deal about each one. Let's start with the Iran nuclear deal. Will they get back into a deal, even though we're not even dealing with, I mean, well, the evidence is bad under Obama, and he still pushed through a deal. The evidence is worse today than it was then. Are we going to push through it for a deal? The Iran deal, as President Trump correctly describes, one of the worst deals ever concocted in the history of America, global foreign affairs. I mean, it really, um, let's just start with its ability to contain nuclear weapons development, which ostensibly was the main goal. Um, you know, what sort of agreement precludes you from being able to inspect military sites where quite logically um, nuclear weapons development would occur? Right. And what sort of agreement provides, you would probably know better than I was, was it 28, 29 days advance notice requirement to be able to look at that? No, if you're not developing it, it should be spot notices. You arrive whenever you want, you send whoever you want. Right. You send UN inspectors, you send US inspectors. We're not developing nuclear weapons. You're welcome to come look wherever you want in the country. When you start putting in provisions like, oh, we need 29 days advance notice, and you can't look in these logical areas where we would probably develop, um, this weapons program, you're doing it because you got something to hide. That's fact. And then all of the intelligence information, as you well know, that's developed really since the signing of that agreement and even before it has been that, that Iran has been um, on an aggressive uh, um, weapons, nuclear weapons development program. I mean, it's part, it, this is a regime that's on the verge of collapse, quite honestly. They don't have a whole lot um, going. They're increasingly isolated in the region. Um, China, I'm, I'm amazed even with their alliance now. I don't know if you call it alliance. Their relationship, strong relationship with China. I mean, here's the country that is indisputably the largest repressor of Muslim human rights in the world with the treatment of millions of Uyghurs in concentration camps and being detained and tortured and... Um, the atrocities go on and on. I would encourage every American, if you don't know about the Uyghurs, to go out and educate yourself. You said never again after the Holocaust, and this is never again. It's happening. And and kudos to uh, Mike Pompeo and, and the Trump State Department for labeling this genocide, because that's the exact word to describe it. But you know, who are Iran's friends really? I mean, it's it's like a it's a it's a hybrid of the worst tyrannies in the world. They're isolated in the region, um, and so there's that. Then you look at the obviously the, the part that got the most attention. The uh, was it the 1.7 billion, I think, roughly ballpark that uh, was you know brought in there and in the, in the in the private airplanes and un unloaded to the mullahs of Iran. And then hey, surprise, the uh, regional terrorism, the global terrorism, by Iran, which is the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world, intensifies dramatically. I mean, like, you know, I think an 11th grader would probably understand the correlation between affording a regime of such malevolent intent with resources like that, with the fact that they're going to go do bad things with it. I mean, for the life of me, I almost wish I could sit down with, you know, the Ben Rhodes and um, the other people whose names most wouldn't recognize, but who I know were behind this whole thing. So what were you thinking? I mean, was it really designed ultimately to empower that regime and to encourage these behaviors? Because 
it's tough to sort of come up with a benign explanation of it. And then, of course, the domestic human rights crisis in Iran troubles me greatly. And, you know, human rights didn't get a whole lot of concern in this last four years in Iran, but I spoke out on a lot of these executions. I've been following them. We've had some, and I'm sure you've been involved, maybe probably more than I have been even. But we've seen, we've had some success stories and we've had some failures. And the one lesson I've taken away from it is that if the world unites on these issues and speaks out, you don't have to do everything, but just if you can just do a little, um, this regime is going to be responsive. They're, they are acutely aware that they have a very bad image on the world, on the world scene. Right, absolutely. I mean, uh, how they react to those human rights cases is, is actually exactly correlated to their positioning on the on the global stage if they feel like they don't have an ally or a friend or some somewhere to you know uh, thump their chest they 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 respond totally differently um you know i, I wonder one other thing that i thought was of interest in fact i'm curious what your thought is on it is that the saudis have an interesting position on this agreement and that is that if the u.s does in fact go back into it which is very ill-advised and i hope that doesn't occur i think we should continue the maximum pressure but i know that that's not what this band of characters now at the state department and and white house are all about in the nsc um but if we we are going to go back in it. I mean, the Saudis are like, well, we, you know, we want to be a part of it as well. And I think that's probably constructive. I mean, because one of the great risks of Iran developing a nuclear weapon is not just the fact that, you know, they would use it to intimidate uh, countries all over the world, possibly including our own, um, and certainly Israel, but also that uh, it's going to spur an arms race in the Middle East, last thing we need in that region. I mean, how Saudi Arabia you know, if you're in Riyadh and you're getting hit by, um, you know, missiles um, being sent out of Yemen by Houthi rebels supported by Iran, I mean, what level of tolerance are they ultimately supposed to have toward this level of aggression that's been directed at them? Oh, obviously, there's a limit to it. And nuclear weapons in the hands of Iran and not in the hands of Saudi Arabia, I know from the standpoint of the Saudi government, would leave them feeling very vulnerable. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there are so many different proxy wars that Iran is involved in, um, you know, and, and to pass along, there's so many scenarios. I mean, being, um, you know, in in, in some, si some sort of um, heightened tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran, you have them passing the scenario of them passing it along, along to Hezbollah or Hamas to use it against Israel. You know, there's so many different scenarios. They're, with, they're in Iraq already. They have a stronghold uh, there. They killed Americans in Iraq. Right? They did. Of course, so, they did. Uh, for I realize for a lot of Americans, this is far away, and and you know they may not recognize a lot of these um, opposition forces, these terrorist organizations. They're bad guys, almost without exception. But what you need to know, and this was the justification, I think that certainly made the killing of uh, General Soleimani very warranted. The head of the uh, IRGC in Iran was the fact that um, they were behind a lot of the killings of of Americans in Iraq. And whatever your view is on the invasion of Iraq, and I certainly have taken a lot of reservations back from where I was originally based on, you know, like everybody else, I kind of looked at it and took what I was hearing out of Bush 43's uh, administration's um, announcements about it 
you know, with the utmost credibility. In retrospect, it might have been probably was a mistake, you know, and uh, but uh, it was made much more costly than the United States because of Iran's no level and involvement. Right. And on, on every level. I mean, when when people on the left are for an Iran deal, the, the only reason I could see in, in their minds to go you know, back into an Iran deal would be to spite Donald Trump. Other than that, it offers nothing to particularly those on the left who believe in women's rights, who believe in human rights, who believe in freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom to protest and everything else. Well, of course, as, you, as you well know, um, what's complicated about it is the agreement does in fact exist, right? I mean, you right. still have the EU in it. So Iran is already obligated to, you know, keep its commitments that it's got within that constraint. And a lot and of, I'm sure you and I are on the same page on this, yeah. of saying, what are you doing? Why is the EU engaged in this level of trade? Why are you empowering this regime right. uh, to do bad things? And, um, you know, so it's not like we're really gaining any extra level of protection that we, I mean, really what you're doing is giving a green light to big companies to go trade with Iran. I mean, is there, what, what other benefit are we deriving from going back into the agreement? Oh, absolutely, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the pressure campaign is, abs- it's, it's working. Look, when people in Iran actually tell me that they are for the pressure campaign, even though it's making their lives more miserable in every way, because as we know, those sanctions are always passed on to the people. It's always the main street economy that gets affected but what they say is that it is it, it's it's almost like they're willing to bear that discomfort or the hardship for there to be actual change for them and for them the only change is regime change it's not this reform or you know give them more money where are they going to put it they're not going to give it to the people of iran that's the, point, that's the point and that's like what we we i think one of the big challenges we have politically in the united states right now is explaining exactly things. right uh, conservatism is sort of, I, I really think in a lot of ways is oversimplification, but like progressivism is kind of like checkers and conservatism is kind of chess. Like you mm-hmm. got to think like a little more about and a little deeper about some of these issues. But, you know, on this particular um, theme, I mean, it's just yeah. self-evident that it's destructive. How are you going to trade with a regime, a totalitarian regime that will do just about anything to its own people? I mean, you know that you personally know the magnitude of atrocities that have occurred. Um, I think, but I would say, you know, back to the 1979 revolution, you're right. right? right. And I know you're a um, personal affiliation with that. How is it possible that you would think that that regime is ever going to take any of the uh, benefits that it derives from trade relations with Western democracies and utilize it to the benefit of their people. Of course, they're not going to do right. that. Right. And, they never, and they never have. And I, I you know, to, to kind of piggyback on your last thought, I actually thought that the biggest weakness of the Trump presidency was that lack of explanation because it just made, I mean, I don't know if it would have helped because I think from day one, he was dead on arrival, particularly to the mainstream media that controlled the narrative. But with a lot of the foreign policy moves, I thought he had always made the right decision, but yet he was always criticized. You know, had he explained maybe the travel ban better, he tell the people in America, we can't call the DMV in Russia to vet this individual, so we cannot take the chance of him blowing up your child's baseball game. And that's what it comes down to, you know, or with Iran, we can't give them, you know, bags of cash. They're not going to spend it on the people of Iran. The people of Iran are telling us they're going to go spend it on terrorism. So we can't do that. Even now, look at the people that are calling it a Muslim ban. I mean, you've got White House correspondents. I mean, 
Absolutely. Or you have groups like Code Pink. I know no better. And and it's, you know, it's like, okay, now all of a sudden you're an apparatchik in the Democrat Party and you're you're fighting the same ideological warfare that um, the administration is. I mean, you take. Or they called him a warmonger for years and years, but yet when he wanted to reduce our troop presence in the Middle East, it was like, oh no, that might be. Wars did he start? I mean, right. First president in a long, long time not to initiate any major conflict abroad. That's a real uh, serious accomplishment for this president. Look, it was a very now. So now that it's over, um, I went through four years knowing that we needed this man in the White House. I endorsed him on day one. June 16th, 2015, mm. no, nobody was earlier to the party. And in part because I, for the same reason many Tea Party leaders and even some of my colleagues who were co-founders gravitated to to um, politicians that we elected, like Ted Cruz, like Marco Rubio, like Rand Paul, I sort of knew that we needed something completely out of the box, that we mm-hmm. needed somebody who like literally did not care what uh, opposition or names were called, he was called, or what sort of, um, you know, basically uh, static that he confronted as he went about his, I knew that whoever was there would have confronted these same issues. They would have been different ones, but it would have been four years of opposition. I knew this guy was singularly, position to be able to take it and he did uh i mean to literally to to be flying off with three major republicans who should have been right by his side thanking him for his service and thanking him for allowing them to serve not being there what an extraordinary stab in the back i um i I, so i I think like on that and then on the fact that he was able to bring and i don't want to underestimate this because i think it's huge i i he was really singularly among those candidates, I guess Rubio has come around now and I'm impressed with his thinking and commentary on this, but he got China. He got China back in the 1980s. He he knew what the CCP were about. He knew that uh, the dangers that they, that they were presented. He understood these trade imbalances were, uh, were decimating to American jobs and these jobs weren't coming back once we lost them. Yep. Um, and I give him a lot of props for that. And then the trade and, and immigration issues. I mean, would we have ever been talking about immigration ever in our lifetime if it weren't for Trump? Right. You know, I, I've always said those who loved him loved what he did. And those who didn't like him didn't like what he said. Um, and it's unfortunate because, you know, those actions are very, very important. And he, he was always America first. Always. America first. Definitely. I concede even as, an, as a purported expert on this and as somebody very close to the president and the administration that I have to say, I mean, if you ask me to really articulate what these guys as a body didn't like about why they hated him so, so much it, you know, I, I guess it'd be a hybrid of issues. I think it was, I think it was in part that they didn't trust him because he hadn't been there for a long time. And, you know, you're president of the United States, you walk in day one, you're given a lot of information. Right a lot of information, things that go on in this world that you couldn't possibly imagine, that they didn't trust him with. When you say they, are you talking about the media? Are you talking about the deep state? Are you talking about- the in, in, Intel community predominantly, you know? Right. Um, which, right. you know if you were gonna look at the deficiency of the president of the last four years and say, hey, what could have been done differently? I think you hit the one thing, and that was 
you know, like in that campaign, was it a good idea to have come out and said, you know, announcing a Muslim ban? No, he gave birth to that phrase. It didn't exist beforehand. He never implemented it. And the communications on it could have been a lot better and should have been more assertive saying, do not use this phrase, does not apply. Right. Otherwise, Indonesia would be in there. As the right. And North uh, Korea and Venezuela would not, because as far as I know, they are not Muslim countries. <laughs> that's right. Uh, in fact, we go through about the top five or so that are exempted um, from it. Um, and, and there were real, and by the way, though, you know, what the origin of those seven were, I mean, it was from the Obama administration. Sure, sure. Exactly right. Through, you know, their national security uh, personnel who reviewed basically their airport procedures and processes and their visa screenings and concluded there literally were none in a lot of these countries. I mentioned Somalia because it's one of those glaring examples. There aren't really health records in Somalia. There aren't really records of, of incarceration or, right. or people's ideological radicalization. And, um, you know, so if you just want to roll the dice and say, hey, come on in, because come on in, because I don't know why, come on in. Right. Uh, just because as, you have seen it. has now done, it, it's just a roll of the dice. And, um, you know, we're, we've had, I think, a sufficient number of experiences with this by now that we should be on guard, and we're not. I work for a uh, governor of the great state of New Jersey that you and I have uh, logged some time in. And, um, <gasps> Uh, Tom Kane, who was chair of the 9-11 Commission, and as you know, that was one of the prime components of the 9-11 Commission, get control of the overstayed visas, right? There were really a, a number of takeaways. Get the intel agencies working together because they were working in silos. They weren't sharing information, okay? So all these truthers have it wrong, okay? Al-Qaeda launched 9-11, and they did it uh, to advance their radical Islamic agenda. But there were signs uh, beforehand of a coming crisis that could have been more broadly shared in the government and weren't. And that's been part of a longstanding governmental, I don't know what you would call it, uh, firewalls between all of these intel agencies. Maybe we don't need, what are there, 27 intel agencies? Maybe we don't need 27 intel agencies. Maybe five would be sufficient. Well, that's not going to be uh, changed in the next four years. Um, Maybe after that. <laughs> um, I want to get your thoughts um, on, you know, what will Trump's legacy be? Um, you know, it's it's a tough question because I, I want to ask you, it's, it's a two-part question. What would Trump's legacy be um, before the Capitol Hill event and now once he left yesterday? Um. I really think they were very determined not to send him off with the message to the rest of this country. Don't anyone else be stupid enough to come down here talking about draining the swamp because we will make your life miserable. Um, so they found an opportunity there. It turned out to be completely misguided. This should be, you know, in a court of law, which in a way the Senate impeachment trial is supposed to be loosely modeled on, you would have a summary judgment of dismissal. Why would you have a summary judgment? Because the the thesis in the House impeachment articles was mm -hmm. that the, the president of the United States incited the violence with the speech he gave at the ellipse. Well, now we have documented, in fact, the Washington Post even reported on it, and it's in the federal um, FBI's uh, investigation that this thing was like two weeks in the making. 
the individuals who were involved in it were had already decided to do it long before Trump got up and talked, by the way, in case we need to remind people about peacefully and patriotically um, marching to the Capitol. There were no references of breaking windows, no references to entering the, the um, um, place illegally, and lots of questions, frankly. I mean, I, uh, I mean, why were the doors opened, you know? I mean, right. even have answer. I mean, I realized I made some personnel changes there, but yeah. we had um, Elijah Schaefer on the show, and he talked about there's this an order to stand down. I mean, there's a lot of questions, um, you know, more questions than answers, and that's well, and important, which we have to point out now. Uh, two, at least two, Antifa and BLM affiliated uh, Trump opponents, and it's fair to call them that, right? Uh, violent Trump opponents who were very um, involved in leadership capacities of that. So was it, you know, it's wrong to say it was an Antifa BLM thing. I'm not saying that, but it's also wrong to say that it was a Trump. Well, even um, if you look at the numbers and I know the journalists are never the ones to, to really get numbers, but um, if you look at the numbers and I was always a math nerd, so I, this was my first question, how many people actually went into the capital um, how many people were there in total how many people were violent and it comes down to from from my previous guest who was actually there reporting it was about two to three percent of the people who attended were actually violent and, and did all this so to sweep now they weren't even at the rally. many of them were there because trump started at what 11 a.m i think and then he was a little late uh many of them were already down there 11 a.m I mean, yeah, nobody, look, nobody says this was okay. 45 nobody, nobody says this was okay, but to sweep, you know, 75 million people who voted for Trump, and now we have like McCarthyism going on in this country to say, you're going to lose your job, you're going to be, you know, if you're affiliated even with this movement, which brings me to my um, final question. It's so difficult for young people to, to stay on with the GOP when, when there are so many repercussions, when there is such a backlash, when, you know, when they are making it that, you, you really can't be, either you have to be closeted or you have to switch parties. What does the future of the GOP look like for you? Well, I, you know, I, I found, and I'm sure you have too, that like media and those who haven't really been close to kind of the Trump movement have just always sort of thrown it in our face anytime a Republican has criticized or done anything uh, negative that related to Trump. Uh, but Trump, if you go back to 16, let's remember, he ran as an insurgent candidate against the Republican Party for the nomination, but against the establishment, even though he ended up hiring Reince Priebus and, you know, with a lot of those things, I think, were ultimately mistakes. But um, he was he is this he you cannot look at his legacy. And in fact, he emphasized this in his departure that this coalition is it's. Republicans, it's independents, it's some Democrats um, who have become uncomfortable with the party of Davos and, you know, the Silicon Valley censorship and not looking out for the working man and woman like the Democrat Party historically did back in the uh, JFK and earlier years. This is a whole new Democrat Party. And that's really been I'm not saying that there's not a lot of blame to go around and even some on our side, but if you want to kind of get to the heart of what the ideological divide is and the partisan divide in this country, it's been the evolution of this party, which is nothing like what it was um, several decades ago. The things it stands for are things the American people don't stand for. 
and they're being thrust upon the American people secretly, privately, quietly, sometimes illegally. Um, and you think Trump will go off and, and start his, his Patriot Party? Here's my, here's my advice, and I will share this um, prominently and confidentially, and uh, publicly and confidentially, and that is that if, if you even look at the 2020 race and you took that libertarian candidate uh, and assigned those votes to Trump in a few of those states, I, I did the math. It didn't put him over to seven electoral college votes, but he would have won a few of those states if those libertarian votes had gone 100 percent for him, which I think they would have. I mean, what libertarian is going to vote for more taxes and regulations as Biden's promising? Um, so I, I, I think when you start another right of center party, and now you have two right of center parties, you're splitting that vote, basically. Now, if, whether that he might think, well, I can split it 70 30, not 50 50 or 60 40. Uh, but even at 70 30, um, it's not enough. And he, he just showed, even with the whole party behind him, um, right. that, How it was, it was. that it wasn't enough. So right. we need to be, I think, rebranding the party taking the party over and this is one thing that frustrates me immensely is to hear from people well we're going to go start this patriot party i'm like have you attended your local like gop did uh, you ever read about ross perot yeah did you ever hear about perot <laughs> you know i lost my job because that guy all right <laughs> i'm sorry i didn't mean to <laughs> in, like that the lesson that existed in november of 1992 and you could find many other examples throughout american political history that uh, I do understand that the idea of more parties is appealing, and I suspect people on the left think that way too. But ultimately, if the goal is to say we want to, we don't want to just be a party of symbolism. We want to be a party of political relevance, and we want to be able to win. Right. And we want to stand for something meaningful. Then you have to reform and and restructure that party. And sadly. Uh, we're dealing with people that are just disgust they're disgusted with a number. And let's be clear, they're not like when they say they're disgusted with the GOP, they're disgusted with Mitch McConnell and they're disgusted with Kevin McCarthy. And they're disgusted with, you know, if, if McConnell votes for impeachment, you know, I mean, this, this thing's going to snowball and it's going to unravel real quickly. You know, and I know Mitch McConnell since the 1990s, you know, there was no hope, no high crime and misdemeanor. I also know you want Trump gone and you don't want him returning. You vote for impeachment, knowing that the facts don't support it. This country is going to pull the rug underneath you. And exactly right. every Republican in Congress. That's why the Tea Party movement took momentum. Right. We primary these people and we will win. And you know, if you think that's like, go ask Eric Cantor about our ability to do that. No, they're they're, they're the American people of why Trump was elected in the first place. This is the, the same political games that Americans are sick of on both sides. Hey, you know, the, one of the unknown stories is never reported in the media. Um, Donald Trump in 2011 spoke at a Tea Party rally in Boca Raton, Florida. I think you can still find it on YouTube. He got in his um, car after that event and said, wow, that was amazing. And I've always speculated, and several people close have sort of validated this with me, that that event sort of shaped his idea of how a campaign would be structured, the populist rally-based nature of it, which was, let's face it, unconventional, right? right. And and see Romney, McCain, or uh, George W. Bush doing that, and they couldn't have drawn those crowds anyway. Right. But there's that, and then 
And then, of course, Obama making fun of him at that Washington correspondence dinner. I think internally the rage just sort of build up in his system. And and he said, I'm going to show you. You know? Far far be it from me to quote Michael Moore, but he did say before the election, he said the difference between the left and the right is that Trump supporters will f- will drive 500 miles to attend a, a Trump rally, but Biden supporters won't even go five miles to go to a Biden rally. Um, and that's exactly right. He was loved and supported by by his base. And he, he, he and really then, evolved the way that he campaigned when he ran his presidency. He left with 51% approval rating in this country. Okay, you know, so all of this depiction of Barack Obama as being this greatly popular political figure, roughly equivalent figures, all right? They had very strong bases of support and they had very strong bases of opposition. Right, right. Um, Unfortunately, he'll be back. I hope he'll be back. Yeah. I encourage him to come back. Well, he's definitely a a, a one who can... um, garner support and with his loyal base. And um, I hope I hope we'll have better days ahead. Four years of, of hopefully unity. When people say it, I hope they mean it and I hope they work towards it on both sides. And thank you so much, Michael Johns, for being here hey, with us. You're wonderful. I want to actually plug some of your accounts because you are wonderful, wonderful on Twitter. You must follow um, Michael Johns on Twitter, Walt Parlor when it comes hopefully back up, um, Facebook as well, uh, and his YouTube page. You can subscribe, YouTube slash Michael Johns, see his work over there. And you'll definitely have to promise to come back on with us, Michael. I really appreciate all that you've been, all the truth you've been talking about, some really important yeah. issues. Very thank much appreciate so much. Hopefully we'll see you soon. And thank you for tuning in. Uh, we hope that you will sign up for our daily top 10. Go to foreigndesknews.com uh, slash newsletter to be informed of all the day's headlines there, as well as our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you next week.